Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Over the last 10 or so years, there has been an absolute explosion of interest in psychedelics, particularly related to the potential that these substances have to treat a variety of mental health conditions. And phrases like psychedelic-assisted therapy have gone from the relative fringes of the mental health conversation to bursting into the mainstream. For instance, you might have read Michael Pollan's best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind, or watched the Netflix special by the same name. Or maybe you've heard a wide variety of podcast hosts talk about their thoroughly out-there experiences with substances like DMT. There's a lot of hype around psychedelics right now. And it's not just hype. There's a fascinating and growing body of research on the usage of substances like psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA in clinical settings as a potential treatment for everything from depression to anxiety to PTSD. And more anecdotally, many, many people have reported using these substances as powerful tools for personal self-exploration and growth. But as the hype around something rises, it's really easy to get a bit carried away, particularly when we're talking about substances that are as complex and divisive as psychedelics. And that's why I've been really looking forward to this conversation today with a member of the faculty at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo. Al is a member of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences faculty at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and his research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans, with a focus particularly on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. So Al, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. So happy to be doing this with you. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We've been meaning to talk about psychedelics for a while, just because there is such a huge interest in it right now. And I'd love to start with just letting people know a bit more about you and the work that you're doing at Johns Hopkins. I've been here for about 10 years now working with a team of scientists. It's not just me. You know, it really started off with uh, Roland Griffiths, Bob Jesse, and Bill Richards, and Mary Cosimano, who started working here at Hopkins studying psilocybin in humans for one of the first studies to be done in, in a long time after prohibition of psychedelics. And that really got the ball rolling. And it went from one study to a couple of studies to this big movement that you're seeing now, which is not just here at Hopkins, but laboratories all over the country and all over the world have really honed in on this space and are seriously studying both how these psychedelics work and also what they're able to do in a therapeutic standpoint. So I mentioned a couple of substances right there in the intro. I said MDMA, psilocybin, LSD. These are some of the interesting ones. There are, of course, others. What are the main substances that researchers have focused on, and what are some of the big categories of psychedelics? There's a lot of back and forth around this in the field. You know, when you're talking about what is and is not a psychedelic. Yeah. In historical terms, the word psychedelic was really invented by Humphrey Osmond, who is a researcher working in Saskatchewan, Canada, looking at substances like LSD and mescaline and being very interested in the way that those drugs work and trying to find a way to describe them that was congruent with what they were seeing in the lab and in their research and really finding that there was something what he considered mind manifesting or mind revealing about these substances, like it could uncover something that was hiding kind of underneath and already in the, uh, the person's mind or psyche. And that really was the impetus for him 
coming up with this term psychedelic. Mm, mm-hmm. From a sort of purist standpoint, you can think of the classic psychedelics as being these serotonin 2A receptor agonist drugs, which include things like LSD, DMT, psilocybin, mescaline, and many of those have been around for a very long time. Yeah. MDMA was also around at that time in the mid-1950s. It was actually first synthesized in the beginning of the 20th century, but it really didn't gain any sort of popularity or notoriety until about the 1970s. And at that time, there were therapists who were actually using it in therapeutic settings and finding that was very helpful facilitating the therapeutic process. People like Dave Nichols, who have been working in this field from a pharmacological standpoint for decades and very important thinkers, you know, have kind of described MDMA and some of these other substances that are related to it, like MDA, as what he called intactogens, meaning that they allow you to touch within Hmm. or to come into contact with your experience. And oftentimes that, you know, has a very emotional tenor, um, but it can also have a sort of connecting sort of quality as well in terms of helping people connect with one another, as well as being in touch with their own emotions. And so, When you talk about something like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they're not focused only on drugs like LSD and psilocybin, but they do look at other substances. And and actually, a lot of the work, you know, coming back to your first question, that's been done over the last couple of decades has really focused on two substances, one being psilocybin and the other being MDMA. And so I mentioned MAPS. MAPS has been for several decades now pushing an initiative to study MDMA-assisted therapy for people with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And they've moved that along rather far in this process of medical evaluation and approval. It's not quite to the approval stage yet, but based on what what I've seen in terms of the media and, and the published research, it's pretty close. And I'm guessing within 12 to 15 or 18 months that you might see movement on an approval Wow. For medical use of MDMA, which is exciting because, you yeah. know, it has been a decades long process. It was just like the classic psychedelics sort of maligned and really talked about as being this dangerous party drug in the mid 1980s, which led to it being scheduled in 1986. But since then, it's come a long way to these MAPS funded studies looking at MDMA, really showing that it's remarkably effective treatment when paired with good talk therapy for PTSD and basically getting it to that place where it may become available in clinical settings in the U.S. not too long from now. Yeah. Yeah, so that's been a big one. The other one, and as this is the area that I've been focusing on myself, I've been looking at psilocybin, and so this is more in the classic psychedelic side of the fence, more slightly differently in the brain, but psilocybin has been studied, uh, as I mentioned, here at Hopkins and then other labs at like NYU, Imperial College London, University of Alabama, Birmingham. So there's a lot of work going on really examining how does psilocybin work and how can it be deployed therapeutically. And a lot of that is focused primarily on mood disorders like major depression and also substance use disorders, which would be what we typically talk about as addictions colloquially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the work on both of those particular types of conditions has been very promising using psilocybin and a sort of supportive counseling or setting with kind of wraparound treatment, really showing that there's some potential for using psilocybin in a therapeutic framework like that. Mm -hmm. But it's not quite as far along in the medical approvals process, 
but it's also working its way in that direction. So uh, I would imagine that there could be some medical approval of psilocybin use in probably three or four years in the U.S., I hope. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly exciting. It's very validating for the work that you're doing as well, I have to imagine. And as you as you mentioned while you were doing that great overview of the field right now, these substances have drawn the attention of researchers for a pretty long time. I mean, Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD back in 1938. He famously used it for the first time in 1943. It's referred to as Bicycle Day. If you're not familiar with that, it's a pretty funny story. And then research started in earnest in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and then as you also alluded to, it was ended around the 1970s, largely due to culture wars of various and kinds which included a lot of misunderstanding about how risky these substances were. You can go trace that lineage back even further in terms of mm. researchers being interested in this stuff. You know, even back as, as far back as the 1890s, German chemists like Arthur Hefter, psychologists like Havelock Ellis were actually experimenting with things like mescaline that they were hearing about from overseas in the new world. And the real kind of longer history, you know, before Western science showed up is that indigenous cultures have known about these substances and have used them as part of their traditional cultural and spiritual practices for at least, you know, several thousand years. Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, people have known about and used these substances, probably in part to alter their consciousness, just like we would use something like alcohol. But there seemed to be something that spoke to perhaps a spiritual or religious type of dimension from these experiences, at least according to the indigenous cultures that were encountering them. And I think that that also made it sort of a point of interest for scientists when they first encountered them and wanting to learn more. Hoffman kind of famously discovered and synthesized LSD in 1938 and 1943, as you mentioned, but he wasn't working on psychedelics. He wasn't interested in psychedelics. He was just trying to make new medicines. And that was one of the ones that he ended up making. Little did he know that that was going to really set off a huge cultural shift. And not only that, but LSD actually was an important part of the process of us discovering modern-day neuroscience and neurotransmitters yeah. like serotonin. So it really did play an important role, not just culturally, but in terms of our evolution and scientific knowledge to say, hey, there are these chemicals in our brains and that they're related to the way that our brains are working, including things like our mental health. And then 1970, 1971, you have the Controlled Substances Act, a United Nations Convention on Psychotropic Substances, and both of those function in parallel to basically make the classic psychedelics and cannabis illegal and highly restricted, not just in the United States, but in all of the United Nations. So it was kind of a big deal in terms of the cultural backlash that mm -hmm. happened at that point, and it sort of pointed us in a way to where we are now, to kind of a, a new reemergence of interest in these substances therapeutically and scientifically. Focusing maybe on the classical psychedelics mostly, as that's your area of research predominantly, what are some of the subjective effects that are associated with these substances, and how are those subjective effects useful for people? One of the things that's so unique about them and about, you know, thinking about them as sort of mind uncovering or mind manifesting is that, you know, all our minds are different. And so yeah. that also means that all our experiences could be different. And even your mind on one day could be very different than it would be another day next week or next month. And so there's all these various factors that impact the way that the drug effects kind of manifest themselves. 
One of the things that's important to also consider is what we think of as a sort of dose-dependent effects, meaning if you take a very low dose and there's a lot of interest in microdosing, for instance, the type of effects that you get are going to be very qualitatively different than if you take you know, a moderate or a very high dose. Almost all the research that's been published to date has really focused on using these pretty high doses. And when you use these pretty high doses, you do get a sort of characteristic profile of subjective effects, particularly with the classic psychedelics. And, you know, that starts with things like perceptual changes. So the way that your senses work starts to become altered. And that means things like colors, shapes, and sounds, even smells and tastes and tactile sensations might seem to feel or appear quite different than they normally would. And you can think of the sort of classic 1960s sort of tie-dye and paisley. And, you know, when you see the concert footage, um, Jefferson Airplane and stuff, you kind of have the, you know, colored overlay of like the shapes and bubbles and colors and lava lamps and stuff. But all of that was really kind of predicated on some of those perceptual changes that occur. There can be a lot of somatic manifestation, meaning that you can become much more aware, not just of what's going on outside of you, but also what's going on inside your body. You could have a heightened awareness of things like your heartbeat, the, the way that you're breathing, you know, even the feel of almost like energy moving through your body. So that can be part of the subjective effects. But then as you sort of move into the experience further, and typically there's a sort of what you might call a come up or you know, beginning of the effects up into a sort of peak where you're getting the most powerful, most sort of intense effects. With some of these peak effects, people can sometimes not just have those perceptual changes, those changes in the way that they feel their body, but they'll start to experience changes in their emotions, changes in the way that they think. Maybe thoughts can be feeling like they're moving more quickly or coming to them in a different way than normal. Same with emotions. People can feel very euphoric or elated, or they might sometimes have autobiographical content, material mm. from their life, mm -hmm. about memories, relationships that are important to them. All of this type of stuff can kind of get loosened up or emerge during the course of the experience. And for that reason alone, you know, it can be very useful to bring psychedelics into a sort of therapeutic setting because it can sort of allow some of the things that we might maybe you want to put in the back of the file cabinet and not think about, but you know, it may still be unresolved and, and it could use some, perhaps a little bit more attention or care. Mm, mm -hmm. So those types of things could come up for people. And I know that when people take classic psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD or even ayahuasca, they will say that oftentimes there can be a part of the experience that's really kind of leading them through different parts of their lives mm. or different relationships that they're in and they have been in and just kind of examining those a little bit more closely. And then as you continue to move through the effects there can for some people and, you know, at high enough doses tend to be a sort of ego dissolving experience. So if you sort of think of yourself as like a water balloon that's been dropped in the ocean and, you know, you're kind of floating along there the experience can be a little bit like, you know, the balloon pops, the water that's mm. inside the balloon merges with the water <laughs> that's outside the balloon. And that can be both a very frightening experience for some people yeah. when they feel like their sense of self or their sort of normal boundaries of what they are and what the world is have kind of come down. But for other people, it can be a, a sort of spiritual uh, experience or an, a very existentially meaningful experience where they feel like they're maybe coming in touch with what it means to be mortal and, you know, their mm. own impending death. 
or they might feel like they're merging or in union with something bigger than themselves, whether they think of that as the universe at large, a higher power, or just nature and the rest of the world and people around them. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the real key qualitative feature there being that there's this sense of unity or oneness, and that mm-hmm. can be accompanied by lots of other features like positive moods, feelings of love, gratitude, and so on. So those are the types of experiences that we found that can be very helpful in some ways for catalyzing the psychotherapeutic process with helping people with, you know, depression and substance use issues and also in palliative care settings. So, you know, for instance, cancer patients who are dealing with the serious illness. There are, of course, what you can talk about is bad trips or challenging experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, people can have a really intense sense of anxiety, fear, panic. You know, they can feel disoriented. So it's not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. It can be really (laughs) scary for people and difficult. Mm -hmm. And like I said, sometimes memories might come up that might not be your favorite ones. Maybe that Mm. might be ones that were particularly difficult. And for some people, that can be very disconcerting as well. All this to say, you know, that subjective effects can vary quite widely. And, you know, people can go anywhere from having a very mild sort of pleasant aesthetic Mm -hmm. experience of watching the clouds melt and, and move around to, you know, thinking that they're viscerally dying and being very frightened or having, you know, an experience that they consider very personally meaningful and and almost spiritually significant. So there, you know, there's a lot of of options there. Totally, totally. And Mm -hmm. just to add an addition to something you were saying there, one of the things that comes up on this podcast pretty frequently is Buddhist approaches of various kinds. My dad, Rick, is a longtime experienced meditator and he's been kicking around the Western Buddhism scene for, I don't know, 40, 50 years at this point. And one of the major features that can be part of that classical psychedelic experience, as you said, is ego loss or ego death. And that is something that I wouldn't say it's necessarily pursued in Buddhist traditions, but it is a plausible part of meditative practices of various kinds, particularly when you get into stuff like the jhana states which are these deep states of meditative absorption, which can sometimes come along with the feeling of the self beginning to dissolve. And something that we've talked about on the podcast in the past is doing what we can to hold the self a little bit more lightly in perfectly normal ways during everyday experiences moving through the world. And the ways that that can be therapeutically quite helpful for people to relax that tight holding of like identification with I. And a major thing that you explore in your research is addiction. And I think that one could frame some aspects of addiction or substance use disorders as being really associated with that like tight, tight selfing action. Like you have this very ingrained pattern of behavior that, okay, we're trying to find something that disrupts it. Do you think that that's a useful part of the experience for people who are battling addiction? Yeah. And, you know, that comes really to the question of what is the role of spirituality in recovering from mm-hmm. addiction and, and in, you know, mental health bigger picture. And I absolutely agree. I think there's some huge overlap between Buddhist psychology, different types of spiritual traditions that talk about states like samadhi, these deep sort of meditative or awakening types of states that can occur that kind of overlap really nicely with psychedelics. And yes, you know, in in many ways, our ego is a sort of suit of armor that we wear and that protects us. And that can be quite helpful. But in other ways, when we can't figure out how to take that armor off and put it down and step away from it, then it really does become like a prison that we're kind of stuck in. And I think that that can be the case for people who are 
struggling with lots of mental health conditions, addictions included, which is that we have sort of painted ourselves into this corner where we're really identified with this specific pattern of either thinking or feeling or behaving or all of those things, which is, you know, has become dysfunctional. It it was probably started Mm -hmm. off as being helpful in some way, perhaps if you're numbing pain or dealing with a very difficult traumatic events or overwhelming feelings of anxiety, then, you know, it makes sense that a person is going to seek an escape or at least a reprieve temporarily. But absolutely, you know, to your question, does the psychedelic experience help by sort of disrupting those sort of regular patterns? I think that that's one of the mechanisms that seems very plausible to me. Because what we've learned from the last decade or so of brain imaging research using psychedelics is that they really do put a sort of hard shift on the dynamics of the brain in terms of what it's doing, the way that it's communicating, which correlates very nicely with the way that people are feeling when they're under the influence. And not only that, but there is some sort of a rebound effect that seems to occur after the psychedelic experience, such that the brain is all of a sudden you want to say rebooted or just sort of starting in to function in a different manner where he stopped all of those dysfunctional patterns or at least kind of blunted them temporarily. And it sort of allows the brain to, to try to seek a new kind of level of homeostasis at which to function that perhaps, especially I think with good therapeutic support, you know, can allow a person to start making changes behaviorally mm. and mentally that can be in their best interest. We've already started to slide into this, uh, so I'm just going to follow your impulse here a little bit. What are these substances doing in the brain? And I don't want to get too deep into the neuropharmacology here because that's a that's a whole thing. But maybe just focusing on psilocybin, what are the main systems? You mentioned serotonin earlier that it's impacting and how might what it's doing to those systems lead to the, some of the results that people get out of it? Yeah, this is a great question. I will just start my response by saying I'm not a neuroscientist. I work with some really amazing neuroscientists like Fred Barrett, Manoj Das, and you know there's other folks like Katrin Preller, and you know they're the real experts out there in terms of how do these drugs work in the brain. But I'll give you kind of like the version that I'm comfortable with that you know based on reading their work. One of the pioneers in the field in terms of imaging the brain um, with psychedelics was Robin Carhart Harris, yeah. who was initially at Imperial College in London now in California doing uh, continuing to do work in this field. But taking a step back from the imaging piece, so I guess I should start maybe in a more basic level, which is what you mentioned before. If you look at psilocybin, if you look at DMT, these classic psychedelics, their molecules, you know, they look very much like serotonin, which again is, you know, one of our primary neurotransmitter systems. We have 14 different types of serotonin receptors we've kind of slowly pieced apart over time and not to mention all the other neurotransmitter systems and hormones and stuff that we have going in the brain. But over time, we've been able to piece together this little puzzle that seems to indicate that this specific serotonin 2A receptor is one of the main primary sites of psychedelic function, meaning that when the drug goes into the body and then comes into the brain, it's binding specifically to these serotonin 2A receptors, which are all over the cortex. And then what's happening afterwards is still a bit of a mystery, but we are starting to piece apart you know, certain other downstream effects in systems like glutamate, and some of which seem to be linked to things like proliferation of new connections in the brain 
And then particularly in key regions like the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus. And so we have seen, this is mainly from animal models in mice, rodents, and even in pigs, that when you have even a single administration of one of these classic psychedelics, that it spurs a growth of new synapses, which are connections between brain cells, new dendrites, which are the little antennae that grow out to form these connections. And so really, it's causing the brain to change on a structural level. And again, that's sometimes good, sometimes not so good, because that could happen, for instance, in addiction or in a tumor, you know, in a way that you get growth that you don't want. But the growth that's happening here is in these areas that seem to be really helpful for mechanisms that would be potentially therapeutic, like helping mm-hmm. us think mm-hmm. and plan and decision-make in ways that are more well-refined. And so, you know, as well as emotional regulation centers. So, you know, moving into some of the more bigger picture kind of human imaging stuff, you know, a lot of what's been done is focused on the brain network dynamics, the way that certain different parts of the brain kind of work in concert or as networks to sustain things like attention and our sense of self. There's a lot of early on talk about the default mode network. I think we probably move beyond that at this point to really kind of look at a lot of the other parts of the brain and what's going on there. But the default mode network story is interesting just because there are certain hub regions of that default mode network, like the medial prefrontal cortex, like the anterior cingulate cortex, where you're seeing the differences not only under the influence of the drug, but after the drug is gone out of the system, a day later, a week later, a month later, there's still differences in the way that those parts of the brain are communicating with other parts of the network. And so those changes in brain dynamics and functional connectivity seem to be pointing to some of the shifts that we're seeing in people Mm. when they have an experience with a psychedelic and then they say a week later or a month later, you know, I feel like my anxiety is lower or I feel Mm. like I have less Mm -hmm. depression now. So, you know, I think that's been a big takeaway from a lot of this work is that the brain network dynamics are changing. Um, But we're also just learning more and more about how different little regions of the brain, like the colostrum or the thalamus, the thalamus is such an interesting part of the brain because it sort of takes all of the sensory signals that come in like a switchboard and then sends it off to all the different parts of the cortex where that information is processed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that the thalamus is sort of communicating is, again, acutely altered under the influence. And that may have something to do with those perceptual changes I noted, but could also be helping with this sort of reboot in terms of emotional and thinking processes that we see down the line. Mm-hmm. And I noted emotional regulation is particularly the amygdala, which you know is this really important part of the brain in terms of monitoring what's important for us to pay attention to, particularly things, for instance, that are risky, like, hey, this is scary, you need to look out for this. That has been shown in multiple studies to have less activity when people are under the influence of psilocybin, Mm -hmm. and also that those changes seem to correlate with things like reduced depression. And so, Mm -hmm. again, you know, the story is still kind of being written as we learn more, but there are all these really interesting brain changes that we've been able to observe both at the cellular level, the circuit level, and at the whole brain level that's really giving us a better understanding finally. And there's really just a huge breadth of- A lot of potential here, yeah. Yeah, of different mechanisms on the brain level that we're starting to 
understand a little better. And so it's really exciting, you know, epigenetics mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating part of the literature. So there are these two lanes that we've already named. There's all of the stuff that you just said about what's going on in terms of the structure or function of the brain, the connectivity of different networks. It would probably be fair to refer to most of this research as kind of like, quote unquote, early stage, but it's really, really well done, really interesting research. And then there's this other layer of the subjective experience that people have when they've ingested this substance and their psychological integration of that experience post-experiencing it, right? Mm. And they're both happening. Yep. There is probably a conversation between both of those parts on some level. And there's a really dynamic and somewhat divisive conversation that's going on in the field right now about which of those is what's really doing the trick. Is it both of them? Is it one of them more than the other? And I was wondering what your take on all of this was. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. My colleague David Yaden and, and folks like David Olson also in California have sort of weighed in on this a bit. And I've also written a little bit about it in the conclusion to a paper I published last year with my team where we were basically talking about why we're interested in studying psychedelics for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. I really kind of conceived this as two sides of the coin. You know, there's mm -hmm. the biological and brain mechanisms there's the psychological and subjective effects. It doesn't seem like you can really have one going on without the other. Even if you have some sort of brain mechanisms happening that look like psychedelics, if people say they're not having the subjective experience, which we can do by blocking the serotonin 2A receptor, then would that lead to something like a, you know, the same type of therapeutic benefits? Mm -hmm. And you know, my short answer to that question is I think there's therapeutic potential on both sides of the coin meaning that I think for specific types of conditions, mainly in the psychiatric area, which we have a really hard time finding good treatments in that field. Yeah, totally. So when you're talking about treating depression, when you're talking about treating addictions, when you're talking about palliative care, where you may just simply be trying to provide some level of acceptance and quality of life, you know, the subjective effects are very important. Uh, and that's just mm -hmm. based on 10 years of clinical observation working with participants where they feel like their experiences are giving them some level of insight, some catharsis, some sort of emotional understanding, or just a better perspective on their life and you know what they want out of that, which can be transformative. So I think that's really important. But there's also other conditions like migraine headaches, like potentially neurodegenerative conditions, where you may be able to just have very low doses that are not producing these psychoactive effects, but mm -hmm. are producing some of those other benefits I mentioned, like connections and new synapses in the brain, which could have therapeutic benefit. So the jury is still out. I mean, I think it makes sense for scientists to try to study this question more, more in depth and certainly to create medicines that would have some of the potential benefits without some of the psychoactive effects. But I also don't think that they're going to work as well, particularly in those psychiatric types of or mental health conditions, I would say, yeah. or certainly not in the existential ones, because the experience is part of it. It's kind of like if I were to say to you, well, do you want to go skydiving? And you say, sure. And I can say, well, you know, what if I just give you this video of me skydiving and it's a lot safer? <laughs> and you say, you know, some people might say, yeah, that sounds great. 
I'd rather have the video, but I think other people are going to say, well, no, part of this is about having the experience. So, Well, I'm afraid of heights, Al, so I'm definitely taking the video. But practically, <laughs> in terms of what you're saying here, I totally agree with you for whatever it's worth. It, it seems very much like a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B kind of situation. And also one where there's probably a nice synergy between the two of them. Each of them enhances the other to a degree. And you were mentioning earlier these various what are often called treatment-resistant conditions that we're trying to deal with in the broader field of mental health. Some of the most commonly experienced ones are depression, anxiety issues, and then substance use issues, addictions of various kinds. And one of the reasons that, at least from my perspective, people seem to be so interested in psychedelics as a potential breakthrough therapy is one of the phrases that you'll hear people say, is because we don't necessarily have great solutions for these problems for people right now, at least as far as I'm aware. And so part of what people have to do who are researching psychedelics is compare the intervention that people get out of psychedelics not to like some perfect theoretical medication, but to the medications that actually exist right now today. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, you really kind of hit the nail on the head, which is we've struggled for 50 plus years of psychopharmacology and trying to develop and find effective treatments for things like depression, for anxiety, for addictions. And Sometimes we've had some wins and some things that seem to be helpful and successful, which is great, but they certainly don't work for everyone or they don't always work consistently for everyone. So it might work for a little while and then not work. Often there's side effects involved that may not be desirable. So yes, our job is to find better treatments. And if nature has already given us a blueprint for some of those in fungi, in plants that people are already using, then I think it's a no-brainer for us to really delve into that pharmacopoeia and start examining, you know, how do we use those substances in the best possible way? Just taking a step back, you know, I also want to put this in context, which is that the mental health issues that we see and that we seem to see proliferating right now, you know, not happening in a vacuum. I mean, we're living in a difficult time. I'm not just talking about COVID, but I mean, I think the level of stress that many people experience when they look at something like climate change or the way that the ecology and the natural systems in the world are sort of being decimated, whether we're talking about rainforest, we're talking about extinction of species, all of that stuff, I think, sort of points to us living a somewhat non-sustainable type of yeah, lifestyle sure. that I think creates a, a certain level of dis-ease or unease mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. are living with. Not to mention, you know, people struggling to find meaning people struggling simply to make ends meet, you know, people who are in poverty, you know, so there's a lot of systemic and structural issues that I think are part and parcel to the mental health problems that we're facing right now. And I don't think that psychedelics are necessarily going to change those things, but they could potentially help us to become more motivated to face them head on. But the nice thing is that, you know, there is, I think, a real potential, at least for the time being for us to, like you said, at least increase our ability to treat people a little bit more effectively by putting these types of treatments out there in the world. Yeah. So talking about potentially treating people a little bit more effectively, we've used a fair amount of fairly cautious language during this conversation. We've talked about mm -hmm. early stages. We got a long ways to go here. The field's kind of in its infancy, even though it's been going on for a long time all that different stuff. Do you think that we've gotten to a place here where you're comfortable saying with a reasonable degree of confidence that these substances help people 
name these different categories dealing with depression or anxiety or smoking cessation, whatever it is? Or do you think that we still need to accrue a lot more evidence before you're comfortable making a claim like that? Yeah, I think we're awful close. I mean, I would say mm. certainly with MDMA and PTSD, sure. you know, having seen the phase three trial results for the first MAPS phase three study and knowing that they're finishing a second study of that nature, those are the types of studies that are required by federal regulatory authorities like the FDA to approve a treatment and say, yes, this worked and it seems to be relatively safe. And, you know, psilocybin has not undergone that level of phase three scrutiny quite yet. But people are working in that direction and particularly towards looking at it as an antidepressant treatment. So I think we'll have a more conclusive answer relatively soon. But based on what's available right now, I mean, I think and, you know, have to think about this also in the context of historical use. There's been a lot of people using these substances for not just decades, but for centuries. You know, the safety seems pretty clear cut. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously risks as there are risks with almost any type of substance. But doing it the way that we've been doing it with careful medical and psychological screening, providing a sort of container, which includes psychological support before, during, and after the drug administration, the risks are very low, if not near what you would expect for any sort of effective treatment. Yeah. And the data we have, you know, in terms of efficacy is not bulletproof because mm -hmm. we're still gathering those placebo controlled and other types of randomized trial data that are necessary to get to that level of phase three approval and scrutiny. But based on what I've seen, I, could, I would say, you know, if I were a betting man, I would bet that, yes, these are effective <laughs> treatments because I've seen it help a lot of people. And yeah. I don't know if you can see behind me over there. Yeah, I have a, a little bucket up there of cigarette lighters. And those are from mm. people who have come to our studies and try to quit smoking. And I can say very happily that more than half of the people that we've worked with in these studies have quit smoking. And that's higher than you're going to get when you're doing talk therapy or when you're using those available meds. And so that in and of itself is, I think, pretty encouraging that we're on the right track and that we're exploring something that has some real scientific merit, but also therapeutic value. Yeah, absolutely. To, I mean, there's so many things that I, I want to talk about with you here, Al, so I'm going to do this kind of briskly. And again, please okay. correct me if I say anything here that's off base, but my understanding is that these classical psychedelics have a couple of features that make them particularly appealing for researchers, because you were talking about potential risks a second ago. And that's something that naturally comes up when people start talking about psychedelics. Wow, are these dangerous substances in different kinds of ways? One thing that's interesting to know about psilocybin and LSD, and of course, don't be crazy about this, but it is very, very difficult to overdose on these substances in a way that would lead to some kind of a immediate physiological breakdown the way that you see when people overdose on something like, say, alcohol, commonly available substance. And then the second thing that, as far as I'm aware, again, is that these substances are not what's sometimes referred to as physiologically addictive. They can be a bit, of course, there can be appeal psychologically for people who get into habitual use patterns about things, but it's not like with nicotine or with alcohol, where your body can start to develop a physiological dependence on the substance. Is that right? Yeah, no, you got that perfectly Great. correct. Awesome. Uh, well done. Yeah, you know, I think <laughs> those are two of the big risk factors that people are concerned about. The physiological toxicity is very low with classic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin. doesn't mean that it can't harm the body, but yeah, it would be really difficult to have what you would consider a lethal overdose. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't really see that. You typically see more like acute agitation, dysphoria, and you can have some other 
problems that come from people being very frightened and under the influence. But physically, they're usually okay as long as their heart is still working okay. And that's something that we screen for in terms of cardiovascular health. And yeah, the, the physiological dependence piece is, again, right on, uh, which is because of the way these drugs work, there is a very unique property about the way the serotonin 2A receptor is responding to the drugs such that we build rapid tolerance to them. And also as part and parcel of that, there's not a known withdrawal syndrome because if you keep taking it over and over again, the drug stops working or you stop feeling mm -hmm. it. And then as a result, people stop taking it and there's not really a sort of withdrawal that kind of compels a person to come back and take it over and over again, which you would see with any of the classically addictive substances from opioids to methamphetamine to cocaine to alcohol. I think one of the big ones that people are still concerned about, though, is the uncertainty of the nature of the psychological experience. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. again, just like, you know, our conversation about skydiving, you know, not everyone is comfortable with that. Not everyone is gung ho about taking a medicine or a, a treatment where you kind of have to tell them up front, we don't exactly know how you're going to feel after you take this or how this is going to affect you mentally. And I think for some people, that level of being out of control or unpredictability, and certainly in, I think, a regulatory standpoint, that raises some eyebrows, at least, yeah, I would say. Yeah, totally, totally. And I would love to turn to some of the clinical applications here for people. Sure. Fair few people who listen to this podcast are clinicians, and I'm sure that there are plenty of other people who are thinking to themselves, huh, this sounds kind of interesting. What does a psychedelic-assisted therapy session look like in practice, maybe using your research on smoking cessation as an example? Yeah, so the work that we've done you know, here at Hopkins really kind of harkens back to a model that was developed in the 1960s in the U.S. doing psychedelic therapy, typically using one or a few very high doses that are meant to be sort of overwhelming or create some of those peak subjective effects that I mentioned before. But you don't just kind of have someone come in and, you know, give them the high dose like that. Um, you really have to <laughs> walk away, have a good time. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, we really, I mean, they did that in the 60s. And, you know, that's some of the reason why there was so much variability in the mm, study outcomes. Mm. People didn't realize that I think at the time that how the drug was given would impact how it was experienced and what the mm, outcomes mm -hmm. were. So when you gave somebody a high dose of LSD, strapped into a hospital bed and said, good luck, you know, they weren't getting it better as quite, at quite the same rate as the people who came into a nicely furnished space, spent, you know, several hours preparing for the experience, you know, with somebody that they're able to form a connection and working relationship with. And so that's really become the sort of tenets that we now rely on when we're doing this type of work in the research uh, setting here, which is, you know, the sort of model of therapy you could think of would be if someone were coming in, they would come in for an initial screening session. We would look at their mental health history, their physical workup, look at their heart function and their blood work. If that all looks good. Look at their mental health history, make sure there's no contraindications like history of psychosis or certain types of conditions in their family history that could make them vulnerable to having a bad reaction to the drug. And then if that all looks good, we green light them and start in the preparation phase usually some sort of talk therapy or counseling where we're getting to know the person, we're trying to understand what their goals or their intentions are for seeking treatment, um, learning more about their life and what you know the formative events have been, kind of bu building a good, solid working relationship. We typically work with two guides or two facilitators and one participant. 
or client. And the main reason being, you know, these are long dosing sessions. They go about eight hours or so. So it would be hard for me to sit there and uh, not yeah. leave the person alone for some period, even if it was just a brief moment, which we don't like to do. Hence the team kind of model that we use. But, you know, that type of preparatory phase would usually last anywhere from six to eight hours spread out over three to four weeks where we would be seeing people like at a regular interval and planning for the first dosing session. And, you know, there's not a really good conclusive number of doses that need to be used, but we have a pretty good idea of what the dose range is of what we want to use with psilocybin tends to be anywhere from 20 to 40 milligrams that we're giving people and these higher dose sessions. And when people come in for those, they would be, you know, again, well acquainted with the people who are going to be sitting with them. They would be fairly acquainted with the space. And we have a very non-directive approach during the experience itself. People are laying on a couch. They are using headphones like these to listen to music. They often have their eyes covered with the sort of eye shade that you'd wear before you go to bed, for instance. And we do all that to really encourage an inward focus And so it's really easy to become caught up in the perceptual effects. Oh, you know, the carpet is moving or the lights are kind of going dim and bright, which is interesting, but it can sort of take away from more of the introspective type of space that you can enter under the influence. The same with social cues, because if you're looking at me and you're thinking, oh, goodness, Albert looks bored, or maybe I should talk with him and chat him up to entertain him or something then all of a sudden you lose focus on your own inward experience. Mm, mm -hmm. So that's why we use a lot of this sort of music and eye shade type of model. But, you know, typically we sit back during the drug sessions and we let people have their experience. We don't really intervene other than just checking in periodically, taking blood pressure, unless someone is having what seems to be a particularly difficult experience. They get very frightened if they're crying, if they're seemingly anxious, then we're going to come up and sit with them, try to talk them through that because oftentimes it's something that's coming up for them that they may feel overwhelmed or anxious or upset. And so we Mm -hmm. want to provide some level of interpersonal reassurance and support. And that typically, I would say 99% of the time does a trick to get people through that process, but not always. And, you know, we do have medications on hand to help people calm down if that's needed. But that's very rare in my experience. But, you know, when the session kind of resolves on its own, which usually takes about six to eight hours and people go home, they rest. And we have a follow up or integration period where in the day after and then typically for several weeks up to a couple of months after, we'll continue to see the person repeatedly checking in on regular intervals once a week or once every other week. And part of that is to just make sure that they're still feeling supported and that they're not having any lingering effects that are untowards. Mm. But also part of that is to process and unpack the experience. What was Mm -hmm. that like? What came up for you? If there were any sort of insights or valuable lessons, what were those? And how do we sort of make the most of them now? Because you can think of the period right after the session as being almost a particularly ripe plastic period to make changes if you're able to go in there and do that with good facilitation. So I think it's really interesting that it is non-directive, because I think that when people have a vision in their head of what psychedelic-assisted therapy looks like, they're probably thinking about a conventional talk therapy session with somebody, whether they're doing CBT or DBT, or they're doing more of a somatic approach or whatever it is, where they're really engaging with the clinician and they're working together on fill in the blank, on something that they're doing. 
So it's interesting that you're you're talking about essentially people having a, a fairly inward journey that's proctored, sure, but they're just mostly moving through their own material. Is that right? And how did people kind of get to that as the as the format for this? Well, that's exactly right. You know, I think you described it perfectly. But you know, there were different models of psychedelic therapy that were being kind of developed and practiced early on in the fifties and sixties, and it sort of diverged. There's a little fork in the road in a way where some therapists, primarily in Europe, the European side of the pond, were practicing what we talk about as psycholytic therapy, mm. where you would do the same type of preparation, perhaps, but then you would use sort of lower doses where people were still generally in control of their faculties, and they would lay and do a course of talk therapy during the drug effects. And this was kind of in line with your psychoanalytic tradition that was pretty dominant at the time where you kind of picture a person laying on the couch and talking mm -hmm. to the therapist. So that was something that was being done and still done today, you know, in some underground circles. And I think that there's uh, potentially some value there in using, you know, concurrent talk therapy with the psychedelic dosing. And we even will sometimes engage in that type of stuff during the dosing sessions here because people will want to talk and engage and, mm -hmm. you know, they'll have mm -hmm. some sort of a thought or emotion come up that they want to process in real time. But the model that kind of emerged more on the uh, North American side really kind of focused on having these overwhelming experiences, these peak experiences or these transcendent or mystical experiences where the focus was much less on the interpersonal relationship in the room and much more on the sort of mental contents and, you know, even reaching the state of ego dissolution. Mm -hmm. And so when people are there, Oftentimes, they don't really want to be engaging with you anyways, because they're having this sort of very profound experience. And it's almost like if you're in a movie theater, you're watching this really fantastic movie. It's just, you know, mind blowing. And then you have somebody like poking on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Or what, you know, what, you know it can be kind of annoying, actually. Yeah. You might want to think, you know, hey, let the person have their experience and then you know, when they are done with that, then we come back and we'll talk more about it. And so that's mm. more like the approach that we take. Looking at the way in which these sessions take place, reading some of the studies that you've done, they're pretty long courses of treatment. You're talking about five or 10 or 15 weeks of an intervention, multiple sessions leading up to the psychedelic-assisted session. The psychedelic-assisted session itself is quite long, like you were saying, six to eight hours long. And then if that doesn't kind of get you all the value that the person wants out of it, it doesn't kind of solve the problem right off the bat, there might be another round of five weeks, another round of five weeks, and so on. Is the hope that one day, and I understand that we're putting the card like way before the horse here, but still, is the hope that one day this would get covered by insurance or something like that? Because that's a lot of therapy. Like that's a lot of clinician time for somebody to potentially pay for out of pocket. And we start to get very quickly into issues around access and availability and whether or not these treatments, even if these substances work, if the way in which we're doing these interventions is actually portable or not. Yeah, great question. You know, I think it's something that um, a lot of us in the field are now turning our attention to yeah, totally. uh, because, you know, when it moves from lab to clinic, then we have to figure out how does this work? The first thing to note is that, yes, you're right. You know, it is two or three months of talk therapy you know, sometimes involving a full day of dosing session, it's time intensive and it's resource intensive. But if you kind of look at a person that's been smoking every day for 40 years, sure. a person that's been dealing with depression or trauma 
that's really been crippling them in terms of their ability to live their life, you know, for decades, then it is a kind of a short time, of course, to be able to see some sometimes very profound changes. Big change, totally. But, yeah. you know, in terms of the affordability and the access, you know, one of the big problems that we have in this country, I think, is that we have a for-profit model of healthcare. I don't think that really makes sense. It doesn't work. It sort of treats healthcare as a luxury item and not as a human right. And so that means that if whatever type of illness or condition I have, if I have enough money and insurance coverage, I can get it. And if I don't, then I can't. And too bad. Mm. And so I think, you know, that's something we're going to have to grapple with sooner or later as a sort of a bigger picture issue. But yeah, you know, I think that MAPS and others are certainly thinking a lot about how do we get insurance payers to cover this type of therapy and treatment to make it accessible because there is, I think, a need for it. And even if your guiding light post is dollars and cents and profits, which it often is for health insurance organization or something like that, there is savings on the back end, even though there is a great amount of investment on the front end, because people, if they are stopping smoking, if they are stopping using some of these toxic substances, or if they're feeling less depressed, then they can go out and live a life that is not going to be involving consistent chronic illness, going into the doctor, going into the emergency room. So there is a sort of on the back end of this, a recoup of the investment. But yeah, I I think we kind of have to shift our priorities here anyways, because it shouldn't really be about dollars and cents. It really should be about easing human suffering. And if we're learning ways to do that, then we need to find ways that are economically viable to do that. But, you know, the other part of the access issue is really getting this to people who, you know, many of whom are marginalized and people who are coming from minority communities, communities that are suffering from high levels of poverty, incarceration. And so many of those people are the least well-resourced and also the ones who could use this type of treatment the most because they've suffered so much trauma and mental health problems. So yeah, it's going to be imperative that we figure that out and we really kind of be proactive about making sure that there is a way to get this to all the people that need it. I'm optimistic that we can do it. And I know that people in the field are taking that seriously as a challenge, uh, you know, in terms of figuring out how we're going to do that. As we get to the toward the end here, Al, I would love to hear from you where you think we're going with all of this. To give one example of that, almost all of the research that I'm aware of on psychedelics focuses on psychedelics as a treatment for mental health issues of various kinds, for pathology, basically. But there are plenty of people who might not have a pathology, but they might really want to use these substances for a variety of different reasons. As they have been used, as you were mentioning toward the very beginning of the conversation, for as near as we can tell, thousands of years uh, in various contexts as tools for personal growth, let alone recreation. But there is certainly like a mental health aspect of this that could be uh, very useful. For starters, is that something that you think is going to get studied? And also kind of attached to that, just where do you think the field as a whole is going to be in five or 10 years? Yeah, great questions. Um, I think you know, it already is being studied. And, you know, a lot of the work that's been done at Hopkins and other places has been in healthy volunteers, as we call them, people who aren't presenting with any clear pathology. Um, but we've also done studies in priests and religious professionals to understand how these types of experiences can impact their spiritual life and their professional efficacy. You know, we've also done this work in people 
who are long-term meditators like your father yeah. who who have a regular practice and try to understand how are they experiencing these very altered states of consciousness produced by the drugs as well as in novice meditators when you take your normal person off the street who's interested in learning a meditation or other type of spiritual practice and you either give them some high dose psychedelic experiences or you don't you know in a controlled fashion what does that do and and you know it does seem to sort of amplify or accelerate the ability for people to not just adopt some of these spiritual practices but to get benefits from them yeah. so i think that's a great point you know that there's i like to think of these as different sort of piles of psychedelic use because there's been obviously like this indigenous use that's happened for so long which is generally around these different types of cultures and traditions that been around for a while but then there's also been another culture of sort of recreational use that has emerged you know in the 1960s and has still you know been around since and during the electronic dance music era and raves which i think has its own equal level of validity you know recreational is often talked about as a sort of it's really maligned and thought of in negative terms but people need to have fun and enjoy their lives and i think that if people use these as tools to get there then that has its own level of validity sure. and as certainly as much as you know going out to a happy hour with your friends after yeah. work or something like that yeah. which is perfectly socially accepted people like bob jesse and others in the field have talked about you know using psychedelics for the betterment of well people meaning if you're not presenting with pathology can you also get some benefit from that and the answer seems to be yes so that also begs the question of why would we make this only accessible under these certain conditions, you know, if the insurance is going to pay for it because you clearly have like a severe major depression. And yeah, I think that kind of puts us in a space where perhaps, you know, there needs to be availability or access to people who want to explore these substances in a more spiritual manner or, or merely for, like you said, uh, if they're looking for personal growth, not for treatment. Mm -hmm. Those are really, I think, places that need to be looked at. And, you know, that ultimately just begs the question of the criminalization of drugs and drug use in general, yeah. because I don't think that helps at all. And I, I think that it's a sort of a silly policy that we've been stuck with since the 1970s, this war on drugs mm -hmm. that has not reduced addiction, has not reduced drug-related problems. And so decriminalization, at least, seems to be like a very feasible response to say, look, if people want to use these substances and they have a good understanding of the risks and they're doing them in ways that are safe, just like any person who's drinking a beer at a bar, then why would we restrict that? Sure. In terms of where the field is going, you know, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but mm. a lot of the work has been kind of exploring new conditions, looking in different directions, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or anorexia or chronic illness like persistent Lyme disease. You know, we're starting to really branch out and say, well, what else can we use this for? As well as kind of diving in deeper to say, well, how are they really working biologically and psychologically? And then also figuring out, you know, well, what are the best ways that we can roll this out in the therapeutic setting? Does it yeah. need two therapists? Can we figure mm -hmm. out ways mm -hmm. that are more easy to access or more easy to implement? So, you know, I think those are a lot of the big questions that we're working on right now. And, you know, I think a lot of that will be answered or, you know, come into better definition as we see it move from a medical approval phase into actual implementation phase where you may see lots of clinics sort of opening up and people accessing this at a wider scale. 
I think that's an awesome answer. And Al, I just really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me today. So thanks so much again for joining me and for sharing so much of your great work. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on here. We started today's conversation by discussing a bit of Al's work at Johns Hopkins before talking about the broader context of psychedelic-assisted therapy and psychedelic research in general. It really has a very long history. People have been interested in these substances for a long time. And that's due to their unique effects on our subjective experience and their unique effects on the functioning of our brains. We talked for a bit about what classical psychedelics are and what non-classical psychedelics are, and the differences between these groups are a little bit fuzzy, but classical psychedelics generally include substances like psilocybin and LSD, and some of the unique features of them that make them so interesting to researchers include the subjective effects of these drugs, which at the perceptual level can include changes in vision or sensitivity Uh, hearing sounds that aren't there, seeing objects start to undulate or look like they're underwater, brightening colors, louder sounds, whatever it might be. And then on a deeper level, there can be a kind of uncovering that Al talked about early in the conversation, where these deeper layers of the psyche seem to come into our awareness and Maybe something kind of bubbles up from the subconscious, or maybe there's an unraveling of our egoic self altogether. And that might sound appealing to you if you're somebody who listens to this podcast, or it might not. And there are absolutely instances of people using these substances and experiencing a lot of discomfort, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety going on the so-called bad trip. But when well-supervised, these substances have been found to be really very safe. And unlike other substances that are broadly available, they aren't physiologically addictive, and it is very, very challenging to overdose on them. And we didn't talk much about drug scheduling during the conversation itself, so I wanted to throw in a little bit about that toward the end here. Pretty much all of the substances that we discussed today are Schedule One drugs in the United States. This means that according to federal agencies, they have both a high potential for abuse and no medically accepted use. And just being transparent, it seems totally ridiculous to me that these substances have a Schedule One classification when physiologically most of them are less dangerous than alcohol, and there is incredibly promising research on the viability of these substances as novel treatments for some of the most treatment-resistant conditions we've ever tried to deal with. We then spent a little time talking about what these substances are doing in the brain. And psilocybin and LSD work inside of the serotonin system. They have a variety of different effects on the brain's systems, and we're really still in our infancy in terms of understanding what exactly is happening inside of the brain that is leading people to have the profound experiences that are associated with these substances. And then alongside that, what it is about the changes to maybe brain chemistry that might all of a sudden make it a lot easier for somebody to quit smoking, for example. From there, we spent a little bit of time talking about why it is that these substances work. And specifically, is it just about those neuropharmacological effects? Is it just about what they're doing in the brain? Or is there something in the psychedelic experience itself, the trip that people go on that contributes to their effectiveness? 
would it be possible, theoretically, for some manufacturer to distill these substances down to what you can put in a pill, you pop it, and you solve your problem? And I would say that both Al and I are a bit suspicious of that possibility for a whole bunch of different reasons, and it seems likely that it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. What's going on in the brain, of course, matters, and your subjective experience during the use of these substances probably contributes to their effectiveness as well. Al then laid out what a psychedelic-assisted therapy session looks like in practice. It often involves a number of sessions leading up to the psilocybin-assisted session itself. Then the psilocybin-assisted session is pretty darn long, it's six to eight hours in general, and then people do a bit of integration afterward alongside the assistance of a couple of clinicians. A couple of things about this were really interesting to me. The first is how these sessions are very non-directive. I don't know why I thought this, but I kind of thought going in that they would have more of a classic talk therapy style of approach. But it turns out that most of the instruction that they give to the people during these sessions is to focus on their internal world, which makes sense if you think about what these drugs are probably doing for people. And it might actually be a little bit disruptive when you're going through this profound experience to have somebody sort of nudging you from the side, being like, hey, tell me about your feelings or your early life experiences or whatever it might be. And then the dosages that are studied are really pretty high. And it seemed to me that this is because they are trying to get people to that place of maybe not full ego dissolution, but where they have that spiritual or mystical style of experience. To end by giving a little bit of personal opinion here, I think that it's clear that these substances have really unique potential as a novel treatment for some of the conditions that the field of mental health in general has just really struggled to treat for a very, very long time. And at the same time, it's appropriate to be a bit cautious and a little bit careful and to not get totally wrapped up in the hype and the idea that these substances are going to be a complete cure-all for all of humanity's ills and they're just going to bring us together in one kind of big happy family. That seems a bit unrealistic to me. But as a specific treatment for a variety of conditions, and then alongside that, as potentially a very useful tool that people can have to investigate their own consciousness, their own mind, their own thoughts and feelings, to break some of the problematic patterns that have emerged in life over time, wow, they have just remarkable potential. And I was really heartened by some of the things that Al said at the very beginning of the conversation about the potential timelines involved here. I wasn't really clear that we were 12 to 24 months away potentially from MDMA being given that breakthrough designation and potentially being used in therapeutic contexts for people. And even the three or four or five years that Al was saying as a potential timeline, uh, similarly for psilocybin, really seemed very soon for me. I had thought for whatever reason that these might be longer processes in terms of getting them to regulatory approval. And of course, there can be a lot of stumbling blocks between here or there. A lot of stuff can happen. But wow, that seems really very optimistic to me. So I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. I know that I learned a lot. I think we're probably going to get some questions about this episode. And you can always reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and get a bunch of bonuses in return. 
Also, quick reminder, if you made it this long in the episode, please subscribe. And you can maybe leave a rating and a positive review as well. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.